chapter 6 of Revelation. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When, I, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed, after, followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon, sorry, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? You see why people stop preaching this. It's difficult. It's a challenge. And yet... I think we can see, uh, it's, it's, the reason I wanted to preach Revelation is one, you're going you're gonna to read this stuff and you're going to get ideas about what it means from somewhere. And I don't want my church and my children and my people getting that from a source that may not have their best interests in mind and maybe, uh, maybe hasn't spent the time in it. And so it's important that we look at it. And let's start here. The great issue here is it's offensive. And it really deals with the problem of evil. And if you actually Google problem of evil, you find this has been a discussion forever. Philosophy has been struggling with why is there evil? Why would God even allow this? What's happening? He seems to not just allow it, but approve of the violence. And, the... and this is why so many people have had a visceral response to Revelation, and even Martin Luther struggled with it, to say, this is not of God. This is, there's no gospel in this. And it's difficult. I disagree with them, and I think we'll show you why, but it's difficult. But when we look at the problem of evil, there's lots of approaches. Why is there evil in the world if God claims to be real and omnipotent and so on? And one of the most uh, interesting responses to it comes from um, a book that you maybe have read, but you've probably watched the Abbott and Costello version, if nothing else. It's um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. And 
In this play, Jekyll is struggling because Jekyll, the doctor, realizes that inside of him there's two natures at war, a good and an evil, and he longs to separate the two. And here is what he says. I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. And from an early date, even before the course of my scientific discoveries had begun to suggest the most naked possibility of such a miracle, I had learned to dwell with pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements. If each, I told myself, could be housed in, a separ in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his upright twin. And the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure, and no longer exposed to the disgrace and the penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil. It was the curse of mankind that these incongruous parts were thus bound together, and uh, that in this agonized womb of consciousness, these polar twins should be continuously struggling. Now, what Jekyll is saying is, there's these two parts in me, and I want to get rid of them. I want to be able to separate them. And just like every modern man, even to this day, what did he think? Let's do it with a pill. We can come, man, man can conquer the problem of evil by coming up with a potion that will allow my good side, Dr. Jekyll, to go and be good, and then send off Dr. Hyde or Mr. Hyde to go in the night and do his evil things, and that way I'd be free. Of course, if you read the book, you realize it fails miserably, and he becomes increasingly evil because the evil side takes over, and eventually he dies. Sorry, spoiler. Okay? But this approach, I applaud Robert Louis Stevenson and Dr. Jekyll for identifying the problem. We are dual. We have two creatures in us fighting. The wrong part was he was under the impression he could separate it, as if good and evil are a ball of uh, mixed-up twine that are two different colors, and if I just separate it, I could divide the two. He under misunderstood how deeply we are both how radically we are both, as he says. And the Bible, however, is the only right approach in all of human thought and philosophy that touches on the problem of evil and not only identifies how wicked it is, but actually offers hope. Because Jekyll failed, right? He had this solution, but it failed. So the approach, as we're going to see, and this is not a secret, I'll lay my cards at the table. The reason there is evil in the world is because we refuse to submit to a sovereign God. We are rebels and we won't lay down our arms. That's my thesis. Now let me sustain it through Revelation chapter 6. And we're going to see Revelation 6 shows us so much. One of the things you have to be careful doing in Revelation is not to get so concerned about a, a, a tree that you miss the forest. You get so caught up on what is the blood moon? What is the 250,000 dead people? You know, What is this one rider? That you forget to see what it's trying to tell you as a whole. And as we stand back, we see... God is sovereign, we see why we resist God, and then how we can submit, okay? He is sovereign, why we resist him, and how we can submit to him. And I assure you, people are going to send me emails. This is a hard topic, because we're going to talk about election, and sovereignty, and predestination, and man, it's going to be a long day. So, no, I'll be quick. But let's jump in. God is sovereign. So what does it mean when we say God is sovereign? A nice, simple definition comes from the Westminster, Con Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, 
God from all eternity, eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own, own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Okay. This means there's basically three things, and, we, and I have scriptures that will support it if you want, but we can't go into great detail. This means God has a plan. It means God has the power to accomplish his plan. And thirdly, nothing can prevent him from accomplishing his plan. And in the words of R.C. Sproul, for those of you who know who R.C. Sproul was, if a God is to be sovereign, there can be not one maverick molecule, meaning not even one molecule in all the universe can do something contrary to what God says it's okay to do. If one molecule is renegade, and, and marches to a beat of its own drummer, then you can not only not trust this God, but he doesn't deserve the name. Because if God is not sovereign, then the thing that is sovereign over him that can put a wrench in his plan should be the sovereign. So, you all believe, like it or not, in a sovereign God. You may not articulate it, but you assume and hope there is a sovereign God. And this is rigorous, it's very difficult, because we all say that, but then when you start to look at the implications of what it means, if God permits everything that is happening. Doesn't approve of it, I'll explain the difference. But if he permits it, you have to face a difficult situation where there's a God who says, without any concern, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You don't like it? You're not God. That's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to wrestle with a God who says that. But let me now explain and show where in this passage we see this sovereign God at work, and why, if you read it carefully, you're forced to wrestle with this question. And we're going to talk a lot about these horsemen and the seals, but let me just walk through where we see sovereignty first before we talk about what they mean. So, the first seal, this white horse comes. Notice, he says, come, right? This creature yells, come. The white rider is not free to do as it pleases. It comes when it's called, right? So he is not a renegade. It is controlled by God. The crown is given to him. So it gives us a hint. This isn't Christ. This white rider is not Christ, as some people might suggest. How could it be? The crown is given to him. It's not inherently his. So what we're seeing in this first horse, min, horse man, is he is under the power of something. It is controlled. Second rider comes. Notice the language. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth and he was given a great sword. So he's permitted, meaning somebody had to give him permission. So again, you're seeing someone is controlling this seeming chaos. All the stuff that's going on in the world and will go on, we want to be able to say is not God, but we have to wrestle with the fact that he permits it. Let's not shy away from it. Let's not exonerate God. But we will explain what it means when it says he permits it, as opposed to approving of it. I'll get there. Third rider. Notice this third rider is limited. There is a voice that cries out to him and tells him, do not harm the oil and the wine. So he's limited, similar to when God speaks to Satan in Job and says, you can go this far, but no further. God is sovereign even over this. Let's move on. Fourth seal, the pale rider. The Greek word is chloros for chlorophyll. It's green. We call it pale. I'm not sure where we got that, but pale. Maybe because green people look sick. I don't know. Or sick people are green. Well, green people would look sick as well. I think it holds up. Um, and again, death in Hades. Hades meaning hell. We're not talking about just a grave. We're talking about this, this being going through the earth like a sweet streeper. 
and dragging the dead bodies and interring them, but also dragging bodies into hell, into the afterlife, not simply putting them in graves. This is a morbid, horrible scene. But even this, they were given authority. So all of this is happening at the behest of the one seated on the throne. He's a sovereign God. We can't let him off the hook. Chapter 6 is probably, or seal 6, is even more remarkable. All these cosmic things that happen, and again, we'll talk about those. Notice it says, this comes from the, uh, they want to be delivered where? From the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? Meaning, they even recognize this is done by God. So there's a sovereignty. God is overseeing all of it. At the very start, we saw how John sees this one seated on the throne, this majestic God. Nothing that occurs is outside of the, of the, the purview and the control of a God who loves you. That needs to be understood as we're struggling through life, death, sickness, whatever it is. There is a God who actually understands how these different things work together, and he's controlling it, even if you don't understand it. Now, with this on my, in mind, oh, let me say this. People will say often, I get this a lot. So if God's allowing this, doesn't that mean he approves of it? Sounds like a good argument, doesn't it, for a skeptic? And I thought I had this when I was young. It's not true. And I learned it when I had kids. Because I have children, and I tell them, clean your room. It's a command, actually. Clean your room, you know. Clean your room every day. And if I tell them every day after, before, dinner, before bed, you must clean your room. And then I go and I check. And for the first few weeks, they do a good job. So I think, okay, you know what? I'm gonna, you still have to clean your room, but I'm not going to check any longer. So they clean it the first day or two. But after that, the standards slip. Now, did I, in, in their slipping standards of not cleaning the room, do I approve of it? No, but I permit it. My will made it so that they could sin. They could disobey my command. But that doesn't mean I approved it. I wanted them to clean that room. And they showed by their behavior that they weren't interested in following Daddy's command. And the moment I realized that, the moment I realized the difference between permission and approval. God permits it. Now, why he permits these things, that is some, a little bit above my pay grade in many ways, and many of ours. But there's often answers we just don't want to face. And we'll talk about why I think that is. So, the first point is very clear. God is sovereign. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Exodus 33:19, Romans 9:15. That is a fact. Next, why is it that we resist this God? Um, the very, there's so many things we could say. But let me start with just, again, we, I don't want to be here forever. John 6, 44. John chapter 6 is actually a very struggle, uh, difficult chapter. I took a class on the Gospel of John years ago in my, I think my master's? I don't remember when it was. But with a guy named Ben Witherington. So if you know your, your, nerd, your nerdiness, you know Ben Witherington has written 70 or 80 books on the New Testament. Brilliant guy. And he, made, he showed out, he said, you know, one of the things you notice in John is Jesus is picking a fight all the time. He doesn't mind poking and saying, oh, you don't think I should heal on the Sabbath? Stand up, let me watch this. And he makes them watch him flaunt his authority almost. And he says a radical thing in chapter 6. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father draws me. When Paul says you are dead in your transgressions, listen, I know it's difficult. You do not choose Christ. Christ chooses you. That's difficult, isn't it? We, especially in this modern age, we want to hold on to our individuality, our choice, our freedom, because we're under the impression that this is a problem of freedom. 
Um, but the reason we resist God is because you can't choose him. And put more clearly, you can't and will not choose him. Let me explain this, because somebody will come inevitably and say, what does this mean then? Has God barred my way? Is he saying, here, choose me, but you can't. Is he that kind of a God? No. And let me use an example. I tried this on my family, and they thought it was okay. <laughs> let's imagine, I don't know, if there's a vegan in the room, I'm sorry. Um, but let's imagine you're a vegan. Don't come to my house. I don't know how to make anything but meat. Um, so if you're a vegan, and you were to come to my home, and I was to lay before you a beautiful roast pig with the apple in his mouth, you would look at it, and you would have presumably very uh, different approaches. You might be, um, find it unappetizing. You might be offended by it. You may even find it uh, sad. You'd have some sort of visceral, re visceral reaction to that pig. And as a vegan, you would not eat it. But in not eating it, have I hampered your free will at all? No, you could eat it if you want, but you won't. Why? You don't find it tasteful. And the Bible continually tells us, history, philosophers tell us over and over, the reason you will never and cannot come to God is not because he's barred the way, but because when you look at him, you find him offensive, you find him sad, you find it ridiculous, you find it foolishness, whatever it is. You will never choose Christ on your own. Never. That's the biblical claim. And that is difficult for us. In the modern world, we want to say, no, I have a part, right? I play a part in this. And I'm sorry, you don't. And that's why we never choose Christ. And so long as we refuse to choose him, we're going to see what the seals show us. Our world now and continually will continue to be mired in violence, confusion, famine, inflation. Seeing that? All of these things it's pointing out, and it'll increase. In chapter 24 of Matthew, the disciples ask Jesus, they say, hey, what's the end going to be like? Tell us so we can be ready. And he says incredibly wonderful things, such insight to Revelation if you read it. And he says, I won't read it, but he says, this is what's going to happen. It's going to start with deception. There's going to be a lot of deception. The world is going to come, and there's going to be false prophets, people claiming this is the way, and don't listen to them. Then there's going to be war as a result, because what happens after confusion? Division. And what happens with division? War. And he says, then after the war is going to come famine. And then after famine, there are going to be earthquakes. And then he says an incredible, two incredible things that will influence how we read Revelation. He says, one, but don't worry, this is not the end. It's the, but the beginning of the birth pains. Meaning, hey, these signs that you're seeing in the seals aren't just going to happen in the short window before he returns. This is going to happen. This is going to mar human existence forever. And, and he says, but things will increase. And as they increase, he says, lawlessness will increase. And the love will grow cold, he says. Brilliant, it's so poetic. Love will grow cold. And then there will be a coming. And then he says, and the church, he says, and you will be delivered into the tribulation. Interesting, right? So much for the rapture. Sorry. There will be a rapture. But I don't, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't see a way that you're going to miss the tribulation, or I. Throughout Scripture, we see that we are being prepared to endure through tribulation. Listen, I hope I'm wrong. I'm a wimp. I'm a wimp. I'm content to be wrong theologically here. If, there, if I am whisked away before tribulation, praise the Lord. I mean that sincerely. I just don't see it in Scripture when Christ himself says it. So, with that, we now look at, the, at these seals more carefully. The first seal comes, and it's amazing how it follows the same order Christ speaks in. 
I, I shouldn't be amazed. He wrote them both. First, the first seals, the white horse, the white horse and the rider, comes with spiritual confusion. And people often say, well, no, some people say, isn't this Jesus coming on the white horse? No. And this is how we know it, I think. Throughout Revelation, we're going to see as we go through, the beast, the Antichrist, when he comes, the reason so many people follow him is he's really good at mimicking Christ. In fact, there's even a scene later we'll, we'll talk about where the beast dies and comes back to life. And what he's doing is he's mimicking. He knows that if he can look very close like Christ, just like him. In fact, the best counterfeit bills that you use are the ones that look almost perfect. And so when he comes on a white horse, he is mimicking Christ. But he's bringing confusion, which you'll see, again, much more could be said. He's bringing confusion. He's wearing a crown that's given to him, meaning he's not Christ. Christ has his crown. He is king. He doesn't have to be given to him by somebody. So, when he comes and when this, this confusion comes and he tries to confuse how things are and who, what's right, what's true, what's a gender, what isn't, there, of course, then comes what after? The vision, which is enter a second horse. The red, this red rider comes and says he will t- rob, take peace from the land, meaning civil strife. There's after spiritual corruption always is followed by strife and war in the world. And what follows that? The third rider, which is famine, inflation. And it's what he said, I mean, literally when it says the denarius was an accepted term for a day's wage. And what he's saying is, when this all happens, one day's wage will cover one day's worth of food, meaning subsistence living. There won't be any flourishing here. It's going to be suffering and famine and struggle. However, he says, don't touch the oil and the wine, which is a bit cryptic. Most scholars will say what he's saying is, some people are going to thrive. The ones who are wealthy enough to own the oil, the orchards, the olive, olive orchards, and the wine, the vineyards, they're going to do okay. But many will struggle as a result of these conflicts that come. Then comes this grisly pale horse that comes, and he's sweet streeping, as I said. He's clearing everything up, and they have authority. They, actually refers to all the horsemen, have authority now to kill 250,000. Okay? Or, or, sorry, a quarter of the Earth's population. Now, don't get caught in that quarter. Remember I said at the start, I'm convinced these numbers are symbolic. The point is not everyone's going to die. And if you spend your whole life trying to figure out when has the pandemic killed a quarter of the earth, if it does, the end's coming. You've missed the point. The point is, so long as we resist the sovereign Lord, this is going to happen because we try to replace him with counterfeit kings. And the result is always confusion, strife, war, and human struggle and death. Always. And this is part of what is happening in this part here. Um, let me just make sure I didn't miss something. Oh, the sixth seal. I didn't get there. Sixth seal. This is incredible. When God in Genesis 6.3 says, I will not contend with, my spirit will not contend with man forever. That is a promise. It's not just a warning. It's a promise. And it seems like what we're seeing in these final days that are described here is God saying, I won't contend. Watch what happens when I let you have the world you want. When in my sovereignty, I remove the common grace that keeps the heathen from being as bad as they'd like to be. And when I pull my hand off, what happens? All things are held together in him, say Colossians. So all things come apart when he pulls his hand off. And so you're seeing the world coming undone. So when people come and they say, Carl, the blood moons, you know, they happen every year. Um, I, I have problems with this. He is not describing a natural cycle of of astronomy 
or of, of, of human nature or nothing. So when people say, oh, watch it. If there's an earthquake, it must be the sign of the end. Stop it. It's not what he's saying. And you know how I know? Look at the response of everybody. The entire world turns, and when they see these crazy things happening, they say, it's the Lamb's wrath. I'll tell you this, when the last blood moon happened last September, nobody came away saying that. Just a couple of crazies, right? When, what is being described here is something that is so, of such magnitude, of such unprecedented occurrence in human history that you cannot deny it's the Savior. It's not, well, I'm watching, you know. I'm, uh, it's not what's happening. This incredible scene when you stand back, all, everything comes undone. The sky rolling back like a scroll, all these things. And the scene is cosmic. And it'll be, it'll be, I mean, terrible, obviously. And until then, until Christ returns and this final seal is, is broken, well, the seventh seal, we'll get, we'll get the seventh seal in a, in a bit because he doesn't cover, close, open it here. We're going to be living in this life that is going to be sometimes triumph. And when people say, oh, the, this is, let me say this as well. When people say, hey, the, the, the things just aren't bad enough yet. That's why the rapture hasn't happened. Boy, you're being a, such a white Western Christian. Because if you're in China, or if you're people being beheaded by ISIS on the Egyptian beaches, and you're being persecuted, you say, what, it's going to get worse? Come on. We say it's not come yet because we're living pretty good. It's a very narrow approach. It shows how little, how much we have to pay more attention to Joan and to Gary and about missions around the world. Right? So let's watch that. So, God is sovereign. The world is coming apart because we refuse to bow. Of course, we cannot bow, so here we come to how, how can we? The last point. How could we possibly come to him? Jesus says it in John 6. Only if the Father draws you. The only way. And here's where I'm going to be it's so concise, but it is difficult. I think, this is a Carlism, but I, I'm backed up by a lot of great J.I. Packer and these men before me. Election. Unless you're chosen by God, you'll never choose him. And Packer says it's the most comforting doctrine in all the world, and I think he's right. Here's why I think it's so offensive to us, especially Western, modern types who believe in individual, uh, individualism and freedom. I think it makes so few demands on us, it makes too many demands on us. It, we want to have a part in our own salvation. People will say, listen, if God chooses, why doesn't he save everybody? Why? In fact, not just that, why would he make it people and let them be born and have children and be, have lives and then let them die? What kind of a God is this, they ask? Surely we have an opportunity to choose or reject him. We're free agents, aren't we? Let's look at that. Let's look at it because it's worth thinking about rationally rather than viscerally. So, if, there is a, if the Bible is true, which hopefully we all agree, that there is a, a world God created as good, but the world has gone astray and rebelled against him, God has to interact with his people somehow. And this is basically stolen from R.C. Sproul, so you can blame him. But he's, basically there's four ways that God could engage with, with sinful humanity. First one, he could save none of them. He's not obliged to save anyone. And if you don't believe it, go to the bank and say, hey, I'd like you to forgive my debt. What they will say is, no, we made an agreement, you broke it, and I won't forgive it. They have the right to, but they won't. But they have the, you see, they could do it, but they don't do it. And God could come and say, I'm going to save none of you. You don't deserve it. 
And we don't. He'd be right. However, we also know this. That's not what he's chosen to do. Scripture tells us clearly he didn't say, I'm going to save none. So although that's an option, we can remove it. It's not what Scripture says. Second thing he could do to us. He could say, I'm going to save all of you. All of you. The universalism idea. But here we have a lot of problems. It's interesting. The people who say he should save us all are the same ones who say, I have free will. We've just shown you'll never choose him. The only way he could save everybody is if he overrides all of your free wills and says, no, choose, eat the pig. Vegan, eat it. It's tasty. But to do that, he'd have to convince you that it's okay to eat the pig, which means he has to override your free will. So if God is going to save everyone, he must override your free will. But we know God is not chosen to save everybody. Clear in scripture. So we could throw that option out. The next option is probably the most popular outside and inside the church, but I think is sinful. I don't know, it's just not biblical. And it's this option. He could let us choose. This is the libertarian argument that God, God could have said this. He could say, I'm going to buy every ticket at the Rogers Center for a game. And then I'm going to put the tickets on the street with flashing lights, and I'm going to have sellers going out and saying, just take it, it's free. If you choose a ticket, it's yours. Right? That's an option. He could have done that. And Christians like this argument because it seems to make God less cruel. Right? They're choosing it. He doesn't send people to hell. They choose hell. Now, there's some truth in that. They do choose hell. But don't absolve God. He doesn't need your exoneration. So is, we choose it for that. But the skeptics also like it because it makes us seem like we have choice. But here's the problem. We've just said, you won't choose him. So you think you're making God less cruel by saying, I can choose him. But if there is a God who says, hey, there's a way to salvation, just pick it but he puts it just out of your reach so you can never get it. He is not a good God. He's a cruel God. If he says there's a way to be saved, but you'll never get it, that's not a good God, and you won't choose it. So the only possible, if this is the God we have, we have a problem, right? And besides that, if you can choose your God, you will be wracked with insecurity and a lack of assurance your whole life because you'll think, I chose him, and I was clever enough to figure it out, but... What if I am not good enough? If I was saved because I'm clever and I'm good, what if, what if, if, if I'm saved by my good works, does that mean my bad works can get me unsaved? You see, you'll always be wracked with insecurity. Always. If you're married to a man who says to you as a woman, I love you because you're so young and beautiful. That sounds very nice until you get old and not beautiful. And, then, and men, the same thing. Which one of us is the same strapping size we were? Right? And... Insecurity will always follow. What you need is a God who will say, you have nothing for, I don't choose you because of you. I chose you because of me. He, your, his faithfulness in us has to be grounded in himself or it's not grounded at all. And so the fourth and final option is he could save some. Some. And I watched the video yesterday, it was on social media, and I was shocked. I won't show it because it's, um, uh, it could trigger people. So I was terrified. I'm like, what am I watching? There's a woman in Poland, apparently, on a, on a building, and she's going to commit suicide, and she jumps. And I'm like, what am I watching? How do they put this on Facebook? But four windows down, there's a fireman, and he reaches out and grabs her as she's falling and pulls her in. That's like a superhero, first of all. I don't know how you do that with a human being falling. But he does that. And this is what the Bible says is you and I. You and I are marching inexorably towards the grave. We want to. We choose it. We'll not choose Christ. 
He, the only option is he comes and snatches us and saves us. This is why John Calvin brilliantly says, God overtakes us in our sin. Meaning, you and I are always walking away from Christ. Always. Some faster, some slower. And the only way for Christ to save you is if he overtakes you. Meaning, he has to run faster and get in front of you and play the man-to-man defense, if you know your sports. Right? And this is what has to happen. Now, here we have another objection, don't we? But Carl, it's unfair. Why would he choose some and not all? It's, it's, it's unjust. My friends, it's not unjust. You're just thinking about it wrongly. And let me explain. If all, if all deserve death, which scripture is very clear about, and Christ offers mercy to some, then two things have happened. He offers mercy and he offers justice to everyone else. There's no injustice being done. The reason you think it is unjust, unjust and, and there's injustice there is because you are showing that you don't have a moral or a, or a logical problem with God, you have a submission problem. God is sovereign, and you're saying, I don't believe it. I don't trust him to make the right choices. I don't trust that he'll choose the right ones. I, don't want, I want to have a say. And your lack, so oddly enough, the election problem isn't an election problem, it's a sovereignty problem. If God is holy and he knows better than you, surrender to him. And those people who won't surrender to him, okay, I can't help it. I can't make you surrender to him. You'll either find him beautiful or you'll find him repulsive. But here's the good news, I think. Lots of things. Well, one more objection, because if people keep, there'll be a lot. If he's chosen, who's going to be saved in the world? Why evangelize? They're going to be saved with or without your effort, Carl. Why evangelize? You're misunderstanding. This is, I think this shows that we have drunk the cultural Kool-Aid. We are under the impression that the reason we preach Christ is to win souls. That's secondary. It's important, but it's secondary. I preach Christ because he's beautiful. I preach Christ because I can't help it. If you were watching on social media, you'll notice this week I discovered a new singer. Okay? Canadian musician, Christian, but he writes good music and not just cheesy music. I love him. Brand new. So I reach out to him, and I'm telling people, I'm like, hey, you should listen to this guy, you should listen to this guy, listen to this guy. And I'm like a fan, Sarah called me a fanboy, you know? But I don't mind, because we always brag about the things that satisfy us. And so the reason I preach Christ, my friends, is not primarily to win souls. I do it because if I don't, I don't know what else to do with my life. I can't help it. I do it because he's beautiful. And then I know this, J.I. Packer says, the, re- the, the retrobate are faceless. What he means is, the other problem is, I don't know who's saved. I don't know which of us are saved. I don't know. And so, by some mystery, God has chosen some to save and not others. I can't help you understand which and why. But I do know this. He has made it so that those saved, the elect, will be drawn out of the world and into the kingdom through preaching and through witnessing of the church. He has said, that's the way I want them to come out. That's the way I want people to reveal who are the saved and who are not, through relationships, through preaching. And so, I obediently do what God has said. I preach the gospel because I don't know who's saved in this room. But if I present him as beautiful, he will then come and draw you to him. John 6. And so when people say you shouldn't, well, why preach if, if you can't change it? You're not understanding. You don't understand the beauty of Christ. So, boy, I could say much more. Let me, let me close with the five, fifth seal because I didn't touch that. This is where we close. I didn't touch on the fifth seal because it's kind of a different one, right? The rest are all the commotion of history and falling apart. And the fifth seal is this, the martyrs underneath the altar. The imagery from Leviticus of the blood of the animal would be either poured down the side of the altar or it would be splashed against it in some cases. 
And the idea being, all the deaths of the faithful are sacrifices to God. And then they pray. And if you notice something, so far the church has shown up in, in, in Revelation, and it does in Revelation 4 to 6, two things. It worships and it prays. These are the proper responses to a sovereign God. You worship a sovereign God because he deserves it, and nobody else does. And you pray to a sovereign God because you know he can hear and he answers. You know God is sovereign when you pray to him because you're asking him to break the rules. You say, God, uh, you know, uh, we want him to uphold our freedom. No, you don't want him to uphold your freedom. You want him to go to your neighbor or your friend or your child and say, God, don't let them run away from you. Break their will. Transform it. You want a sovereign God who can break into the cancer and kill it. You're not praying for a God who isn't sovereign. There's no God who is not sovereign. Sovereign or not. And so the prayers, we pray to God because we know when we're in joy, he did it. And when we're in distress, he can change it and he brought it on us for our discipline and for our good. And so these are acts of obedience. And the reason these, this church, that, that these martyrs can behave this way is because they know they're elect. They know that they were chosen not because of their, 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 um, because their good works. So they know they can trust God to judge. Notice they say, you know, bring justice. We've been, we died unfairly. And they don't take justice in their own hands because they understand there's a sovereign God who judges. They don't need to be judge and executioner. They have a judge. And they trust him. And they know that they are saved. It is well with their soul. You know how they know? They're given a white robe. It's yours. You don't need to fight for it. Ju when justice comes, is not the issue. You're mine, and I, can't, I won't let you go. And the, the, the certainty that comes with election is unparalleled. We can get it nowhere else. And so when you look, and this is where I'm very close, here's the good news. If you're in this room right now, and you are not a Christian, but you feel like, holy cow, I better deal with this, that's a good sign God is already drawing you. If you feel a desire to know who God is, to read the Bible, to be amongst his people, to pray, to serve, that is only something you can feel if God is already tugging at you. Because I know, you know what? Atheists aren't worrying about this. Atheists don't wonder about, they would look and say, Carl, it's all nonsense, and they walk out the room. But if you're feeling drawn, you don't have to be afraid of the sovereign God. You say, my goodness, he's drawing even me. And that's grace at work. If you're a Christian, take hope. If he's called you, no one's going to call you out. It doesn't happen in Scripture. You're safe. You can be humble and bold. And now, boy, my goodness, I could say so much more. But we, it's such a big topic. How about I pray and we move on?